Welcome to our end-of-year holiday special, Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. 2021 has had its highs and lows. One of the highs would definitely have to be the emergence of a global community of listeners to the show. It's been a pleasure to know people from Brazil to Canada, the UK, India, Australia, and so many other countries have given us a listen. And to everyone, I'd like you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. In the US too, someone from Idaho finally put aside their West versus Eastern potato growing state rivalry to give us a listen. A hearty welcome to you in the gem state. That leaves only Hawaii, Alaska, and South Dakota on the list of states yet to experience our spin on the history of Maine and New England. It's a season with many families settling in for holiday movies. And so it seemed like a good time to turn a historical gaze onto a few films that have a Maine connection. You'd think that the Pine Tree State would be ground zero for Christmas films, but it turns out when it comes to Yuletide movies, Maine is, in this as in other things, an underappreciated place. But what we do have isn't nothing. It turns out that Maine has a connection, indirect though it may be, to one of the more unusual stories in the Christmas movie canon. The Bishop's Wife, a tale of an angel sent down to answer the prayers of a struggling clergyman, only to take a strong romantic interest preacher's wife in the process. The original was released in 1947, and a remake, The Preacher's Wife, released in 1996. Our guest will be speaking with me about what each version can tell us about America in the 1940s and the 1990s. Then we'll turn our attention to a modern movie filmed and set in Maine, Holly Star. We gave it no stars. It will not become a classic unless Holly Star develops a cult following like The Room. In fact, we might be devoting more thought to this movie's storyline than the actual writer. But if Holly Star is a film we love to hate, you're an audience I love to love. So let's do this. My guest today is Vaughn Joy, a PhD researcher at the University College London, studying Christmas film history from the early Cold War. Vaughn also hosts a podcast called Impressions of America that examines U.S. political, cultural, and film histories from the post-war period through today. Vaughn, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was looking forward to this discussion for a very long time, so we'll, we'll jump right into it. So to set us up for the, for the audience, of course, uh, there's going to be some main specific content. Otherwise, we would not be doing our fans the justice that they deserve. Uh, it turns out there are surprisingly few Christmas movies 
filmed or set in Maine, despite the state's wintry beauty and all the rest. But one Christmas classic of the recent past, The Preacher's Wife, does have a really key scene that is filmed in Deering Oaks Park. And that is The Preacher's Wife, a 1996 remake of the classic film, The Bishop's Wife, filmed in 1947. And Vaughn is is really the perfect guest to have talk about this. Besides being an aficionado of all things Christmas film, Vaughn is particularly uh, qualified to talk about the sort of post-war era of Christmas movies. And so we're going to be touching on a number of of these things. To begin with, Vaughn, if I could ask you a, a starting question. The genre of Christmas movies have been around for quite some time. When did Christmas movies as a definable genre of film, at least in the English language, really take off? So that is a brilliant question because there is no point. It's something that we just kind of collectively decided Christmas films are a genre, of course. There are a few things that you can point to, but there's... I guess this isn't surprising, but uh, there are not very many academics who devote their lives to Christmas films. Um, So there isn't that much literature on it. So kind of picking a point, what I would say would probably be around the late 80s, early 90s. Um, Really? Yeah. And I say that because, so again, contested. So in the period that I study, which is 1946 to 1961, there are 12 Christmas films that I've identified as Christmas films, but they weren't marketed that way at all. They were just marketed as love stories or a court drama with like Miracle on 34th Street was marketed as a court drama. Wow. And And we think of it as a Christmas classic. It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas classic, the Christmas classic, right? Right. But that's only a Christmas classic because when Frank Capra made it, he started his own independent production studio for it, for a lot of kind of Hollywood politics in the the post-war period. When Frank Capra and a number of other directors came back from service in the war, they were very unhappy with how the studio system was going in the mid-1940s. So they banded together and started their own little production company called Liberty Films. They did not do very well because the studio system was like impenetrable. Hmm. So It's a Wonderful Life was released under Liberty Films. And because of that, the copyright for it ran out in 1977 and nobody picked it back up because nobody knew to do that. So It's a Wonderful Life went into the public domain and television channels could run it for free. So the only reason we think It's a Wonderful Life is a Christmas classic is because NBC and ABC and CBS ran it like 24-7 around Christmas for two decades. Oh. Yeah. So like Christmas as a genre wasn't really a thing until the 80s and 90s when films started being specifically marketed as Christmas films. You have A Christmas Story and you have Die Hard that was... There are some marketing materials that call it a Christmas film, and I would say it's a Christmas film. And then you get into the 90s and early 2000s through to today, you get the the awful Christmas films that are like, I like to think of them as how B-list films used to be in the studio era, where you would have your, your main 
A-list films that were like It's a Wonderful Life or like Gone with the Wind. And then there were B-list films that were Westerns or romances or musicals that are filmed in like five days on a set in LA. And it's just like immediate turnaround, super low budget, whatever. That's what I think kind of Hallmark movies and Lifetime movies and now Netflix, they're kind of cheesy rom-coms that they just throw out at Christmas with all of the same plot lines and everything. Hallmark, I got to admit, it's really impressive, though, in the sense that they've decided like, okay, quantity really matters. And it's really important for us to be able to run different Christmas movies consistently 24-7 on Hallmark from Thanksgiving to Christmas, different schlocky movies consistently all the way through that time. And you know they're not going to be good, but... They're going to be comforting. They're like Harlequins. They're like Harlequins, but for Christmas. Love it. I love awful Christmas films. (laughs) Like I study the classics, the great ones. It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, White Christmas, like the classics. But genuinely, one of my favorite pastimes is watching just like awful Christmas films. They're great. I've long been of the opinion that in terms of like, you know, intellectual and literary history, uh, of course, we should, you know, talk about Faulkner and all the like highbrow stuff, Mm -hmm. but like most people don't watch the really highbrow things and don't read the really highbrow things. Most people read trash and watch Mm -hmm. trash. This might've been mentioned on a previous uh, episode. I don't care. Uh, I learned that Paul Blart mall cop dramatically outsold all of the movies that won Oscars that year. And yet when people talk about like American cinema and culture in whatever year Paul Blart Mall Cop came out, they will not talk about Paul Blart. And I'm sorry, if you're gonna just look at like, what do people watch, you know, and what do people pay to see? Uh There's something to be said for that. Yes, I love that you just said that because that's, that's my whole kind of approach to history is I don't find that much value in looking at the kind of highbrow cultural things. That's, we've been doing that for centuries and that's fine. Like the value for me I think there's value for other people to do it absolutely but for me it just isn't as interesting I'm much more fascinated in like the everyday history how did people live in I describe it as kind of the blank spaces between Mm. the like highlights of someone's life like what did George Washington do between battles what did Frank Capra do on a day he wasn't shooting one of his masterpieces, you know, the in-between blank spaces are just so fascinating to me. How did people pass time? How did they react to things when they were stressed? What was their escape? It's fascinating. And nobody is watching Citizen Kane to escape. No. So that's kind of why a, a big part of why I study Christmas films is because it's one tradition, but it's also something that people really resonate with and can escape to even these like, cultural classics that are kind of masterpieces like the ones I listed it's wonderful life miracle on 34th street all those they're just they're this escapist medium that are only acceptable one month out of the year and that's fascinating to me yeah so yeah nobody watches christmas movies to be challenged nobody yeah like and that is that is okay the idea that you should always be challenged by your entertainment Mm -hmm. that is unsustainable and if, if I may go a bit further into this, that's the other part of my thesis is that you're not watching it to be challenged. You're watching it for fun. And everything about our kind of culture says like Christmas films are a good time. But 
that wasn't necessarily the case in 1946 to 1961. And also, you're not expecting to be challenged. So there are subliminal kind of messages in these Christmas films of how they portray Americana, how they portray the military, what kind of discourse they have around politics that you're not expecting. So you don't engage with it, but you remember it. If you've seen It's a Wonderful Life as many times as most Americans have, you remember very clearly the scenes of World War II and how everyone got on during the war. And that is a public memory that you now have about World War II and how it was camaraderie and everybody did their part and all of that sort of cultural context that means so much about the era, but you're not expecting to come away from a Christmas film with a political ideology. So that's what I study these films for, the anti-communism in them and the politics and the, the kind of darker, harsher realities that are present in these films. You're not expecting there to be anything. It's it's Christmas, it's happy endings, it's fun times, but there's also poverty and depression and very dark mental health places that these films go, so. Yeah. Let's get into our, our first, because uh, of course we're gonna get to The Preacher's Wife, filmed in Maine in part, uh, with a, I did, rewatching it, such an amazingly talented cast, and I aggressively think The Preacher's Wife is a superior film 100% to The Bishop's Wife, but we'll, we'll get oh, to that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So The Bishop's yeah. Wife, 1947. I'm going to let you give a, uh, because my recap will be much more negative than yours. So I'm going to let you give our the executive summary of The Bishop's Wife for our audience before we, we go into this. And yes, audience, you should watch The Bishop's Wife too. You don't have to watch The Bishop's Wife. It's not um, an amazing film, I don't think. I do love that the plot of it is that there's this bishop played by David Niven who he wants to build a cathedral and the, it's this like grand design and it's going to cost absurd amounts of money that his parish does not have. So he's courting rich people and asking them for donations. And there's this one very wealthy woman who says, I want to help you build this chapel, but it all has to be I get veto power on it, essentially. And she wants her late husband to be enshrined as a saint in like stained glass and have a memorial area in the churchyard, everything kind of absurd that rich people want, you know. And in kind of pursuing this cathedral and the money, the bishop, Henry, he's really neglecting his town and his wife and his child. And he's so laser focused on this. So he prays to God for help. And the arguably best premise of any Christmas film is that this film revolves around a sexy angel played by Cary Grant coming to earth to seduce the bishop's wife until the bishop realizes that he loves his wife. And yes. then it's Christmas. And that's the best plot of anything ever. The, like There are side things about how the town is in ruins and underfunded and children are starving and there's destitution and everything. But we should say it's not the town. It's New York. There's an opening scene on Madison Avenue. And so Mm. this is New York. And he is he lives. Here's the crazy thing for me is he's clearly some sort of Episcopalian bishop. And he is in waspy, waspy, wasp town of a rich neighborhood. And so like Mrs. Hamilton, like the, 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 the rich widower, he clearly has a rich congregation. 
and th th this is to me why it's not a very sympathetic story. These are a bunch of very wealthy, waspy New Yorkers. The only ethnic person you meet is the Italian Christmas tree salesperson who's in there for one scene. They don't even make the cop Irish. That's how aggressively norm core and unethnic this New York is in 1947. And so, yes, they acknowledge that somewhere in the city of New York, there are poor people who could be helped, but they're not in his, his parish or his congregation, as far as I could tell, right? And so, and he lives, he has servants. He is a bishop who has servants who work for him. He lives like a country gentleman. How many religious figures in the United States in the 1940s lived that well? Very, very few. This is like Bracebridge Hall come to New York City in the, in the 40s. I do wonder how sympathetic the writers thought that this bishop was supposed to be. Because I, for one, didn't find him sympathetic at all. His whole mission is stupid and doesn't matter. And actually nothing matters as opposed to like the preacher's wife has a sympathetic protagonist and a sympathetic cause and sympathetic people. And so I'm not sure if, and yeah, so like sending Cary Grant to seduce the bishop's wife is almost like a morally neutral thing because the bit, you also just don't understand what she sees in him. Yes. And maybe 40s audiences do. And that's something that is lost. I think a lot of the charm for it is that he has an English accent, honestly. Ah, so yeah. So Cary Grant does try to seduce the bishop's wife. And she makes her realize, foolishly, in my opinion, that she actually loves this guy. And so she stays with him. Then, the, then they decide they're not going to build the cathedral and they're going to actually do something useful for society. And then the movie ends. You said that there's a, there's a lot of Americana in this movie and it's sending a lot of messages. So yes. what, ex what, what sort of messages is this film conveying? So... One that I think is really interesting comes right at the end uh, when when Cary Grant's character Dudley tells Henry that he loves Julia and that Henry is lucky to have such a wonderful woman. I think that's really important because in this period, especially 1947, 1948, there's multiple media outlets that have divine characters, divine male characters, telling mortal men that they are more worthy than the divine characters. Oh. So I think that's like a brilliant kind of look into gender in the, the late 1940s that mortal men are above godliness. And that they're more deserving of love and these beautiful women that Henry, who is a terrible character in this film, is more deserving of Loretta Young, the incredibly beautiful and selfless wife, Julia. He deserves her more than Cary Grant, who is a literal angel and seductive. Who looks like Cary Grant. Yes. He looks like Cary Grant. Yeah. So that's, that's one very interesting thing that we can read a lot into gender. Um, and specifically masculinity in the late 1940s, just from that one line of you're a lucky man and it, Cary Grant being jealous of David Niven. There are other things around the destitution that 
at Christmas, you're expected to be a philanthropist, Mm -hmm. but being a philanthropist means that you have to have someone to give something to. So if we shift the focus away from the wealthy people making a cathedral or giving the money away to the children, and we look instead at the children and why they are in this position, which is a trope that Mrs. Hamilton says that she wants to give the money to the poor and the the destitute and the unappreciated in society. That is something that isn't in a lot of films in the late 1940s. So that's a really interesting look into how many kids were on welfare, for example, in the late 1940s. And children who in this film are between like six and 12-ish, the boys in the boys' choir and around their um, original church in the center of the parish. There are some like poor kids around and everything and they look about six to 12. So those kids in 1947 would almost only have memories of World War II and not really know how to conduct themselves in a peacetime society or the depression era in the late thirties. So what I'm doing now is looking at Um, what childhood was like in 1947 and how many kids were in families or communities that had low income or food scarcity and why this film chose to highlight that in 1947. There's a lot of like very fine kind of details in these films that that you come away with an idea about as I said earlier that you don't really think about it but once you start digging into these films, you realize that this is kind of forming your opinion of the 1940s. And that would have formed people's opinions living in the 1940s and seeing these films. I would add or point out that this seems Dickensian as well in the sense that uh, in A Christmas Carol, um, Scrooge never sees real poor people. And that this is very much, I mean, he's, most of his charity goes towards his clearly lower middle class clerk, Bob Cratchit, right? Bob Cratchit works in an office. Uh, he is not working in like a coal mine. He's not genuinely uh, poor. And in the same sense, um, yes, we see these kids, these boys in the choir who are like creepily forced to show up there by Cary Grant. And I would like to return to the creep factor that is present in many movies from this era that just because of different awareness. But anyway, we don't see poverty, poverty in this movie. Uh, And instead it's sort of, it's off camera, which is very Dickensian because it's, it's not like audiences are expecting David Nevin to go to Harlem and or to go to other less fortunate areas of New York City with maybe even people who are not native-born white Protestant Americans to do all this. It's keeping in the like, yes, there's going to be charity, but there's not going to be too much discomfort. And and everybody's still going to say, stay quite literally in their neighborhoods and their own comfort zones. Yeah, that's a, that's a great shout. I just wrote that down, actually. So thank you for that. Um, this is, I should say, it's not original to me. Stephen Nissenbaum in Battle for Christmas points this out oh, about uh, about Dickens. Uh, he was our Christmas guest last year. You are following in mighty footsteps. Oh, yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, Stephen Nissenbaum was here to talk about the Puritan War on Christmas. 
uh, among among other things. So That's you are amazing. our second annual Christmas special, moving us ahead in time for Christmas films. Yes. So other 40s things that I thought I was hoping you could talk about. Monty Woolley, the professor, who I found out he was likely gay, the man who played the professor. In 47, along with the Red Scare, there was the Lavender Scare, as you well know. And so the professor is tasked with giving the only dialogue that refers to anti-communist purges in the U.S., where he says that he was laid off at the university for supposed political radicalism. And he doesn't, he's not really challenging the rightness of kicking out professors for saying politically radical things. He just says, I'm not that political. My interest in politics stops with Cicero or something like that. Like I'm harmless and they fired me anyway. So do you know were the, the writers and producers of this movie, did they have a position on McCarthyism and, and these issues? And this is why they wanted to bring it up because it's he's not really challenging it. So I thought that was an interesting way to mention it without making a big stink. So that is a great question. McCarthyism hadn't really blown up as much yet for Hollywood when this was being filmed. Uh. When it was in post-production, that's when it really blew up. So that line is a very cautious inclusion, let's say. So the timeline of this, what happened was that the MPAPAI, which is the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, they hired Ayn Rand to write... Yes! Yes. To write a pamphlet called The Screen Guide for Americans. And that was released in like mid-1947. And in this pamphlet, she delineates 13 points of things to not do in your films to keep them from being communist subversion. Um, And there are things like don't glorify the common man and don't insult American political institutions, don't insult banking institutions. And in August 1947, the FBI used this pamphlet to name eight films as communist subversion, including It's a Wonderful Life, Whoa. which is not communist subversion. No. Like there's, it's not. It is an extremely capitalist film. It's about two bankers. Yeah. Like it's, but they, they made some, some points about how it's communist subversion and quote, decidedly socialist in nature, how it deliberately maligns the upper class. At that point, Hollywood was like, okay, we need to respond to this then. So Hollywood and Ronald Reagan actually invited the government in with the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which is HUAC. Uh They invite them in to investigate and decide that they need something more tangible. They need to really react to this. So QX subpoenas 11 individuals, one of whom flees the country, it was Bertolt Brecht, and then the other 10 show up for their congressional hearing and are all convicted of contempt of Congress because they refuse to say whether they are communist or not uh, when HUAC interrogated them. So this is the first round of the Hollywood HUAC incursion. 
and the trials around it. The second one was in 1952. In November 1947, 50 executives in Hollywood decided to meet at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and that's where they created the blacklist. And that really kicked off the major McCarthyism scares in Hollywood and the fears of communist subversion and being found out about a communist, naming names. All of that tension lasted from November 47 to 1960 when Kirk Douglas demanded that Dalton Trumbo have writing credits on Spartacus. That's what ended the blacklist. So this film came out, The Bishop's Wife came out in November 1947. Oh, so they were aware of all of this kind of happening. They were aware there there were subpoenas for in September. They were aware of the Screen Guide for Americans earlier in the year while they were in production. So that's what that line is is a nod to. It's we're acknowledging that people think communism is bad, but we are not making a decision one way or other. We're just saying it so that we don't get in trouble for this. Gotcha. I am not a Cold War historian, so this was this was very helpful. If you'll indulge me, though, there's another 40s era thing uh, and these older movies. So I got this on Miracle on 34th Street as well, that this will surprisingly enough connect us to Holly Star as well when we get to Ooh, there yes. in, the, in a different way because of the creep factor. So I find this ironic because in the 1930s and 40s, American culture was in new ways, stigmatizing homosexual men as predators and such. That said, even while this is going on, when movie stars who were not typed that way, so Cary Grant, here's what I really want to say. Cary Grant, as Dudley, is wandering around during lengthy scenes in The Bishop's Wife and basically just leering at children in a way that, at least from modern audience, comes across as highly suspicious and of course, it is not intended that way in 1947, but there just wasn't the same public concept of kind of stranger danger that, that, that we have in, in later generations. And so Cary Grant is, spends long scenes in the beginning of this movie just watching children as a solitary man patrolling the city. And yes, he's an angel, but still, it just looks... And Miracle on 34th Street, John Payne, who plays... Uh, what's Fred Gaelic, the attractive single man who eventually woos the single mother cynic in Miracle on 34th Street. He also, uh, he gets very familiar with the daughter in this movie in a way that, again, to later generations would just be considered highly inappropriate. And he lives, you know, this, it's that weird way uh, that comes across as bizarrely asexual, yet also creepy at the same time where he has multiple single bachelor beds lined up in his bedroom. And that's why Santa and him can have sleepovers. But then he also is just like, why, yes, little girl who lives near me, just come hang out in my house and it's fine. And nobody seems to have a problem with that. And so I would just like to point out how these movies are also time capsules for evolving attitudes towards stranger danger. That is a Brilliant point. That's a really good point that I haven't really thought that much. Well, I, I've thought about it a bit, but I haven't really featured it anywhere. But it's in a few of the other films that I'm studying, too. The creepiness or an the, actual sense of stranger danger? Well, a sense of stranger danger for us, but it's not supposed okay. to be that. <laughs> so in Miracle on 34th Street, Fred literally says 
at one point that like getting the kid on your side gets the mother and like that was his his way of getting close to Maureen O'Hara's character was like befriending her daughter which is creepy and that comes up again in 1949 in Holiday Affair with again the same exact kind of trope of a guy is he gets a toy train for the love interest son and that's his way of like sliding into her life and then and how the... how little did he know did he just like approach the son on the street and be like hey little boy i've got a train for you like um, that seems like how they do it i'm like oh so so in that one he does meet the mom first okay. Oh, but okay. then it's a whole thing in that one he steals her away from her fiance it's a whole thing that film's actually great i really do enjoy okay. that one but there's a holiday affair i'll weird no- noted thing about it the, the creepiest one that is genuinely problematic on many, many levels is Susan Slept Here from 1954 with Debbie Reynolds and Dick Powell. And this film is a ride, but the plot of it is that Debbie Reynolds is 17 and she's a juvenile delinquent and she gets picked up by the police for one thing or another. And she's on her way to jail when the policeman remembers his friend, Mark played by Dick Powell, who was 50 at the time playing a 35 year old. Yeah. Yeah. The policeman remembers that his friend, Mark is a screenwriter and he's trying to write a film about teenagers. So he decides to bring Debbie Reynolds, the 17 year old to live with Mark instead of going to jail. Whoa. So, So that Mark can do research on her. Does she have to? Is he just like, you're in his house now. You can't yes. leave. Yeah. Oh, he whoa. drags her in, like drags her in. She's fighting him the entire way and then spits in his face and calls him a communist. Nice. Which 1954. Okay. And then Mark, to keep her from having to go to jail, brings her to Vegas and marries her. Whoa. Uh, wait, against 17. Against her will? A little bit. Wow. A, a little bit against her will. And then he's like, well, I want a divorce now because like, you're not going to jail now. So let's get a divorce because he's engaged to someone else. And she refuses to get a divorce. So the rest of the film is about her learning how to be a wife and then seducing him and like forcing him into the bedroom. And every time she kisses him or touches him, he puts his hands up like, oh, it's not me doing it. And it's okay because the 35 year old, 50 year old man isn't touching this 17 year old. It's the weirdest film. Whoa. It's it's a trove for cultural history. And it is a like, Christmas movie? It is a Christmas film. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. Also, it's wild. a movie with a title Susan Slept Here sounds like it belongs in the like Debbie Does Dallas era of filmmaking. Yeah. Like, it really yes. does. That is wild. I know it's unfashionable to consider like history as a story of progress but there is definitely some progress between the 40s and well the preacher's wife the remake in 1996 so if we could turn to that which unlike the bishop's wife a bad movie that it was uh the preacher's wife took place in new york part of it was filmed in maine the classic ice skating scene which was admittedly more done up and, and sort of fancy in the, the, the Bishop's Wife, the 40s version yeah. and the 90s. But I think one way they updated, so I'll do the recap of this one, but I'll say to begin with, when Dudley the Angel shows up and the son 
Jeremiah Biggs meets him for the first time. And he's such a cute kid. But he and his friend immediately run away because they're like, oh, my God, it's a strange man who's in our yard. Let's get out of here. As, of course, children are supposed to do when a strange man appears in their yard. And so good job, preacher's wife, handling that better. So uh, it's still set in New York City, but the preacher's wife, it features a reverend, and they don't say what denomination, but uh, probably Baptist or, or perhaps African Methodist, played by Courtney Vance of many accomplishments, but uh, Law & Order fans will know him as one of the ADAs on cr- Law & Order Criminal Intent, uh, which he was playing right around this period, I believe, or, or soon afterwards, anyway. Uh, so Courtney Vance is the, the reverend, or the preacher, if you will, who's trying to save his church from going under. So he's not trying to build a cathedral, he's just trying to save this struggling church in a poor neighborhood. They don't say exactly where it is, they don't give sort of direct addresses, but it's somewhere in New York. Uh, his wife, uh, still named Julia, is played by Whitney Houston, who does sing several times wonderfully. This is actually one of the last, I think Whitney Houston died like five or six years after this. So this is towards the end of her, her life and career. Denzel Washington plays Dudley. So again, one of the best looking men of his, his generation is Dudley. There's a further all-star musical cast where Lionel Richie, Uh, has a few scenes as a musician. And instead of the rich widow, there is a developer, Joe Hamilton, played by Gregory Hines, who's one of the all-time greatest tap dancers in all history. And it's kind of a shame that he didn't get to do anything musical in this movie. Uh, And then Loretta Devine, who's in a bunch of good stuff, was in this as well. And Jennifer Lewis as the mother-in-law who was a backup dancer for Bette Midler. So like a quality all-star cast all the way through. And so this time, once again, the angel saves the day. The preacher, who always appreciated his wife, learns that he has to more along the lines of fight for them better. And the developer changes his tune. He has a, a literal come to Jesus moment when he goes to church and is captured by sermon and song. So, Vaughn, what themes from 90s America jumped out at you that are, that are worth commenting on here? There are several things. The first is the emphasis that, that they've shifted. I was obviously watching it in comparison to The Bishop's Wife, but mm-hmm. the, the emphasis shifting from the bishop wanting a cathedral to the preacher needing this for his community and that focus on the community and the actual parishioners and their problems and everything like that, that was a major progression for this story that I really appreciated. That says so much about the underfunded communities and the racial profiling of African Americans in the 1990s. There's one boy who is arrested because someone says that he shot the liquor store, I think it was, Yes. when it wasn't him, he just happened to be kind of walking by at the moment. And everyone throughout the film believes that that it was this kid, even though he's saying it wasn't me, because he has a record from the past and he is Black. So that says so much about kind of criminal justice around mm-hmm. these communities in the 1990s. Which is interesting because this is right after the big tough on crime 
bill that mm-hmm. the Clinton era, uh, it was the Republican dominated, but Bill Clinton signed it into law. The big tough on crime bill, I believe, was signed either in 1995 or 1996. So this yeah. was peak war on crime in the United yeah. States when this movie came out. Uh, yeah. So for them to take that approach is, is noteworthy as well. Definitely. Yeah. And it's it's the Rodney King Mm -hmm. riots in LA were in 92 and Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of this police brutality and racial profiling through the 90s that really this speaks to a lot another thing would be that Julia actually has agency in this movie (laughs) yes I love that she had a real job she had a job she had an impact on the plot that wasn't Mm -hmm. being seduced by Denzel Washington like that does happen but in all seriousness like in The Bishop's Wife, I don't know what Loretta Young, Julia in that movie did all day because she doesn't take care of the kid. She doesn't have any responsibilities. She doesn't cook. She doesn't do anything. She is strictly an ornament. Even for 47, it seemed like she had a very cramped and limited existence. But yes, let's go back to Julia Whitney Houston. She's she's incredible. Like that was, that's what struck me most about this film is that she had no problem voicing her concerns with her husband to her husband. She was reserved around other people and especially her mother. And that's an interesting cultural thing on its own, Mm -hmm. but she was outspoken to her husband every time. And they have, their relationship was clearly in trouble, but they have a very healthy relationship, I think, because they do actually talk to each other about the concerns that they were having and ultimately it is they, they have a happy ending and happy marriage by the end of it but they're going through these kind of concerns Whitney Houston actually considers leaving him which is something that Julia in The Bishop's Wife would never even be allowed to consider mm-hmm. so that that was really fascinating and just from again a gender standpoint thinking about women in both of these films that was really wonderful she says at one point with Dudley when they're they're speaking outside of her car at mm. one point when they're getting the Christmas tree, she says something along the lines of like, what do you do when the flame goes out? Oh, right. And and mentions yeah. mm-hmm. possibly leaving. And that's oh, just, that's yeah. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Another thing that really jumped out in this film for me was the actual sermon at the end. So mm. in The Bishop's Wife, Cary Grant rewrites the sermon. And in both of the films, the the premise is that once Dudley's job is done, everybody forgets that he was there. So Cary Grant writes the sermon in The Bishop's Wife, and then the bishop thinks that he wrote it. And he's like, this is a great sermon and delivers it. And it's all about remembering baby Jesus and like, this is his birthday. So we need to get back to the religious roots of this and all of that. But the sermon at the end of The Preacher's Wife is genuinely from the heart and the the preacher he makes it up on the spot he changes his mind about what he was going to say as he's talking and it's heartfelt and deep and soulful and you can see him getting energy back that he's been missing through most of the film and that is so so powerful i think and so much better than how it's done in The Bishop's Wife. And it's about love and hope and being there for your community. All of the kind of 
values that you're supposed to get out of the bishop's wife, but are kind of abandoned by the end of the film to remember baby Jesus. So I think it's a, it's a, it just does the film so much better in 96. You know, you make a good point. Also that the fact that really, when you think about it in the bishop's wife, David Nevin doesn't have very much agency either in the sense that his sermon is written for him and the rich widow, she decides without him to give her money to charity. He doesn't initially decide I'm going to give up the cathedral. All those decisions are made for him. And he eventually comes around to the idea and thinks it's his, but like, it's not once again, making him a far less sympathetic character. The only thing he affirmatively does is challenge Dudley to a fist fight if he keeps hitting on his wife. That's it. And then he reads a sermon written for him and then comes around and decides, okay, I'm going to contribute to society. And you mentioned the hope in the community. I think something to be said, the preacher's wife has a much more rich cast making up the community. Like the community Mm -hmm. is largely absent from the bishop's wife. The bishop is going around talking to rich people to trying to get them to donate to the cathedral. And then we have the one shot of the boys choir. And you mentioned that they look like they're down on their luck. And I said that they're all, it's kind of creepy how like clearly Cary Grant is forcing them to be there through his angel powers because they all just start filing in and -hmm. then they start making weird eye contact with them. And it's all very unsettling. But besides those coerced young men, there's not a lot of community like you don't see the congregation whereas the preacher's wife has a lot a constellation of like you know lesser lights and community members and we see you can see why everybody loves the reverend even though he's falling on hard times and there's a scene where dudley says to somebody selling him food oh man what's that reverend's deal he seems like he's a real stick in the mud And then the guy who like runs a food truck or whatever has a pizza place, like takes it back. And it's like, you're not going to talk bad about him. He's a pillar of our community. And so you can really see that it's a different vibe. Yeah. And throughout all of the Bishop's wife, as we said, it's just like, he wants a cathedral. So he's pursuing money for a cathedral. But in this, it's like, Henry misses his his date with Julia in the preacher's wife, because he's going to the hospital to be with one of his parishioners who is in the hospital and yes. has been for months and he he misses another date because he's or he missed shopping with his kid because he's trying to get the boy who was arrested for the shooting out of jail yes. and like that like he's doing actual things so you yes. have a lot more sympathy because it's not like oh you just don't care about your wife as it is in the bishop's wife yes yeah. And I suppose it's weird, like part of the moral of the story for him seems to just be, yes, you're trying, stop being a sad sack. If you try, not harder, but smarter, you yeah. could actually do. And then he, he realizes, yes, I can be an effective advocate and get mm-hmm. Billy out of jail. I can go and be smart and clever and achieve these things. One thing I'll say about the, the criminal justice and the racism is that clearly Christmas movies they're all feel good. And so racism is difficult to do that. So even though there's race bubbling below the surface in this movie, I think it's important to note that they never say the word racism. And Mm -hmm. even though clearly the young man, Billy, who's arrested is being racially profiled, even the judge who's seeing his case is black. 
And everybody in a position of power, even the villains, they're all black. The, the slick developer is black. There are no white people in this movie in positions of power full stop. Like it's just an all black cast. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. But one of the things it does is, yes, this movie addresses some of those themes obliquely, but it's not explicitly about race. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways they did that is by making everybody on the cast of any meaningful role anyway, black. And so they could have said something really interesting about gentrification if Joe Hamilton was white, but they didn't. And instead, he's clearly somebody who did well from the community and has forgot where he's from. Yes. And making the judge a black woman who's seeing Billy's case, I thought that was just an interesting choice where they just decided we're not going to have this be the focus of the movie, where we're going to have yeah. a conversation involving a racist judge and this kid. And instead... It's going to be there, but it's not going to be the center of the movie. And again, what I what I was saying earlier is that like you're not expecting that to be the center of the movie in a Christmas right. film. And yeah. by by making those decisions, we're obviously still talking about the race and and racial profiling in the film. So it's something you came away with, but it wasn't necessarily the guiding intention. And I that's just yeah, it's that was very articulately put. Yes. So now I have a question slash point that is going to get us to our first main point in this in this film. Mm. Uh, and that is the, the question of comparing Dudley's assault on the institution of marriage in both of these films, right? Now, yes. the bishop's wife, Cary Grant, comes straight out at the end and basically says, I'm an angel and you've made me doubt myself and I basically want to run away with you. And of course, Julia foolishly says, no, I'm going to stay with my lame husband and, you know, whatever. Okay, that's me editorializing. But the preacher's wife is much more indirect about this. And they, I think they kind of realize that, especially since the reverend is so much more sympathetic, that they could not have Denzel Washington just coming out all guns blazing, just trying to steal his wife. So the closest that he comes, the most dodgy thing Denzel does in this movie involves the ice skating scene, which is filmed in Deering Oaks Park, which I lived two blocks away from in Portland for a time. It's this beautiful park. It's in the Parkside neighborhood. In the summertime, there's like a fountain there and the kids can splash around. In the winter, the parts of it are frozen over and you can ice skate on it. So they decided to film it there instead of anywhere in New York City. For that entire scene, even when they're walking around, you can see the Parkside neighborhood. So that is where it is strongly implied that Dudley messes with the traffic so that the reverend cannot join them in time to go ice skating. There is some reasonable doubt about it, but I think it's pretty fair to guess that like Dudley's messing with the traffic so that he can have time ice dancing with Julia instead of Courtney Vance coming in and messing with his date. I don't know. I, I think that you probably have more substantive things to say about this, about the, uh, the sort of comparison of the different standards of behavior that Dudley has held to in, in 1947 versus 1996. Yeah, it's interesting because Cary Grant's Dudley has absolutely no problem just seducing Julia. <laughs> like he's He is more than happy to do it. And he tries, as Denzel Washington does, to say, like, you need to go on a date with your wife and 
I'll go do the business stuff. And in both of them, Henry's like, no, I need to do the business stuff. But as we said, in The Bishop's Wife, the business stuff is going to get a wealthy woman to give him money. And in The Preacher's Wife, it's to see his parishioners. So Cary Grant is just like, fine, then I'll go on a date with your wife and takes her out to the place where Henry and Julia got engaged, um, which happens in both films. But Cary Grant seems to know that already when he takes her there. And Denzel Washington does not. He's like genuinely surprised by this connection in the nightclub that they go to. So Cary Grant also very overtly, deliberately is messing with David Niven so that he's like stuck in a chair. He like glues him to a chair almost with his angel powers. Um, Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. In the mansion with Mrs. Hamilton. Which seems really unrealistic. Not the the gluing as as much. That's angelic. But that nobody finds this funny. Because here's this colossal asshole who is glued to a chair and he's just like, mail bother, I need to get some more <laughs> pants. And nobody's laughing at him. And that I find really peculiar. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, having seen The Bishop's Wife, it makes a lot more sense that Denzel Washington is messing with the traffic. And Denzel Washington says, oh, he must be stuck in traffic. And yes. then it cuts to him running into red lights every street he's on. So it is heavily implied that... Denzel Washington's doing it, but it's very clear in 47 that Cary Grant is seducing this man's wife and keeping her out all hours of the night. Like they, they get a cab to the ice skating rink and then they like invite the cab driver to join them on the ice. And the cab driver's like, you two are such a beautiful married couple. And Cary Grant's like, we are, aren't we? It's In fairness though, inviting the cabbie makes it slightly more innocent because it's harder for them to get naughty with the cabbie there. That's true. That is true. But yes, your point. That's a good point. But your point still stands that yes. And there's a much more elaborate, clearly stunt double scene of ice skating in The Bishop's Wife. Yes, there is. The Preacher's Wife, I don't even know if they needed stunt doubles for those two. Like they clearly are able to skate. I don't think they did anything that would particularly need a stunt double. And I think that that's important because it shows that they're just like palling around, like having a fun time. And that's more romantic than Cary Grant doing like fancy stuff on the ice. True. Um, That's true. I also really love that Denzel Washington is not as suave as Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. The scene when they're in the nightclub. Oh yeah. And he's like, let's like, she's, she says, let's dance. And he's like, no. And then he's like, actually, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And he's horrible. He's a terrible dancer. And I think it's, I guess like forties, fifties style dancing. Well, he says at one point 30 years. And so there's that implication that, yeah, this is dances from like the mid sixties that he's trying to do and it doesn't age well, which I thought was, yeah, it's, it's more charming that way. Yeah, it's really charming mm-hmm. and it's it's more innocent and he's not as Cary Grant about it. No. Like I think Cary Grant specifically as soon as David Niven in The Bishop's Wife says, "I don't want your help." Cary Grant's like, "Fine, I'll seduce your wife." And like, <laughs> like it doesn't even really seem like it's part of the yeah. plan to help him, whereas Denzel Washington is genuinely like, "You need to go on a date with your wife. You need to take her dancing. You need to pay attention to this woman." And he's just unwilling to do that in The Preacher's Wife. 
this deals with another difference. Denzel Washington's Dudley, he lays out the rules for us, basically, where he says, I'm not going to do anything that you can do yourself. Whereas in The Bishop's Wife, that doesn't seem to be the case. Cary Grant will just periodically just do stuff for David Nevin that David Nevin could clearly do for himself if he wasn't such a useless waste of space. Whereas Denzel goes and kind of spooks the developer, Joe Hamilton. He starts his car and he does some other things. But a lot of it, it's very clear that Courtney Vance has to go do it himself. And he does. Mm -hmm. And so that's an important difference. But they are they're more transparent with those rules. Yeah. The last thing on that that I would add is that, as you said, Denzel Washington kind of pushes the developer to go to the church and see who he's actually affecting Uh by trying to tear down the church um, is his master plan. And then it's ultimately up to the preacher to change the developer's mind. Whereas in The Bishop's Wife, Mrs. Hamilton, Henry's getting nowhere with her in the bishop's wife and he's just like acquiescing to everything she wants and he's like but i don't want a steel glass saint of your ex-husband or whatever and he's just kind of whining about it doesn't get anywhere with her really and then carrie grant shows up and he seduces her yes and then she changes her mind and informs david nivett's character this is what we're doing now we're helping the poor because carrie grant uses this piece of music that her first lover wrote for her And she recounts that she didn't marry him because she was, quote, afraid of poverty. And that's the closest we get to thinking about poverty, really, in the film. As we've said, like, you see it a little bit with the children in town and there's like a bit of destitution around and everything. And they talk about it. But having a genuine kind of impact on a person, she's terrified of being poor, and Cary Grant seduces her and then convinces her that she has to help other people who are actually poor and living her worst nightmare. So again, lack of agency there. And the yeah. preacher's wife just did it so much better. I would argue if the bishop and his wife in the 47 film did not have a child, Cary Grant running away with the bishop's wife would not have been a morally bad thing. That is not a, a marriage that like I could see in a different, a, with a few tweaks, Cary Grant escaping angeldom and running away with Julia, the, bis- the, the bishop's wife, would be a perfectly fine ending had they not had a child. I agree. He's, it's such a bizarre film, which is why I say like, you don't really have to watch it. Like watch The Preacher's Wife. It's so much better. Last thing I'll say before we get to Holly Star, movies in the 40s and 50s, it was pretty much expected that there be at least one musical number. And yet, this is one of the only cases that you'll come across where you have two movies, one from the 40s and one from the 90s. Neither of them is a musical. And yet The Preacher's Wife has several musical numbers. And of course, they're phenomenal because they involve Whitney Houston. Oh, good. But usually, like, if you're making a movie in the 40s, it could be a murder mystery. It could be anything. And they're like, we need to have at least one musical number. If so. That's almost the law. Like, think about it. <laughs> There's even more movies where they're like, no, we need to have a singer in a club and she's going to sing. Mm. And then she's going to go talk to one of the characters and then they'll go out and, you know, kill Nazis or whatever it is. So I just found that really interesting that, that it's the 90s movie that has musical numbers and good ones. Yes. They're, yeah, they're phenomenal. No, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but that is a good point. 
many of the films in my study do have at least one musical number. Yeah. But yeah, Whitney Houston was a great surprise because I hadn't seen The Preacher's Wife before I watched it for this episode. So as soon as I started watching it, I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> like it was so good. Every cast member, I was just like, this is incredible. And then, yeah, Whitney's voice. So good. Brilliant yeah. film. Having discussed that very quality Christmas film that had a key scene filmed in Maine, we are now switching to a movie that was entirely filmed in Maine and is a far inferior product to The Preacher's Wife. The movie is called Holly Star. It is available on Netflix. You may watch it, audience members. And then you can decide if you want to watch it after we analyze it with much more thought than the movie itself was probably created with. Vaughn, would you care to give the rundown of Holly Star? The executive summary? Sure. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is difficult because the plot is both non-existent and also very existent. The, so there's the character Sloane, she is a puppeteer. And at the beginning, she loses her job, which is a single advertisement for some kind of soda company. Mm-hmm. And this for her is or just life shattering. So she goes back home to her hometown for Christmas in Maine. Her parents aren't there. And that's like a main focus early on in the film. And that just kind of disappears later on that it doesn't matter. Her grandmother is like this tango dancing free spirit. And her best friend is a paintball enthusiast who used to be a Marine, I think. I don't think so. I think she just was a paintball enthusiast. Like those kinds of people who take it way too seriously so that it's socially inappropriate is how I read it. Yes, that's what is happening. That's what makes it so deeply unsettling that she has a commanding officer. It's very weird. Anyway. And and Sloan like goads her into doing things by saying like, I'll find someone who knows the true meaning of Semper Fi. And it's like, what's happening? Yeah. Okay, so Sloane then has a near-death experience and she has this puppet flashback to her childhood of Santa burying a bag of money. And every time she has a near-death experience, which is too many times in this movie, she gets a new clue. Actually, the second time she did not have a near-death experience. She just fell asleep and had a nap and then had a clue. And then she's like, well, I need to die to know what happened to the money. Yeah. Doesn't come back up. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole there's a whole subplot about this like money that there were lobster turf wars in uh-huh. Maine. And, and so by the a- way, edit interjection for Maine accuracy team. Uh, the movie explicitly takes place in southern Maine, basically in Saco and Biddeford. And so in no way the Maine area of Maine where lobstermen are. And the movie is at least dimly aware of this because the grandmother says as much that the lobstermen don't even really come here. That's not the part of Maine we're in. Instead, the the movie is explicitly set. Don't get me wrong. I love Southern Maine. I have lived in Southern Maine. But it is explicitly set in the most tourist trappy, Massachusetts migrant filled, (laughs) least Maineful part of Maine ever and was aware of that enough to have to say like yeah the lobsterman being here is kind of a stretch yes we could have set this movie in 
Belfast or some other like actual coastal town where there'd be more lobster fishermen. But no, then we would have to deal with some less quaint scenery or something like that. So please continue. So I didn't have that context, but now it makes even less sense why they even bring this up at all, because Uh it never comes up again. It has, has no bearing on the plot at all. And the plot eventually kind of meanders over to her realizing that this bag of money in her memories is actually her remembering that she loves the main love interest guy and she just realizes she's fallen in love with him suddenly. Can we also say, so Santa buries a bag of money, but if he only buries the bag in the snow, as soon as the snow melts, the money is going to be gone. So unless he had a real shovel and buried it in the soil, none of this is remotely worth investigating at all. To say this movie had some loose ends does a disservice to loose ends. Um, (laughs) This movie is, it is like a Mad Libs of things people not from Maine might recognize as existing in Maine being thrown in there. Mm much in the same way as this movie is a vague gesture at almost every Christmas movie trope ever without seeing any of them through. So I'm thinking of this. So we have, there's the obligatory moon pie scene. The characters eat moon pies. They have to mention lobstermen fighting in a bar, not because there would be lobstermen in Biddeford in a bar, but because, well, it's Maine. So you need lobstermen doing this. The love interest goes to Bowdoin. They clearly just had him go to Bowdoin because they're like, that's a college that everybody knows in Maine. So we'll have him go there. Even though if you are from Maine and you want to actually leave home, there are other colleges you can go to that are not in Maine. Likewise, they mention Mecca, the Maine College of Art. And if Sloan is going to go away to be, they make very half-assed references to you got really pretentious and artsy and you got too good for us but if she did why didn't she go to art school somewhere out of state instead of in mecca which at least would be somebody who wants to stay in maine and do i don't know they do a lot of like documentary films and things like that i don't think there's a puppeteering uh, division at mecca sorry mecca if i'm wrong audience you can correct me on this the only thing they're missing is having them go out to dinner at DeMillo's, the restaurant on a boat in Portland that everybody takes their parents to when they visit from out of town. This movie is the DeMillo's of Maine references. So that's my rant for Maine authenticity there, folks. But let's continue. One aspect that deserves comment is the gendered nature of puppeteering being creepy. If Sloan was named Sam, and was an out-of-work puppeteer, this movie would never have been made because clearly a guy who's an out-of-work puppeteer is obviously on the sex offender registry and this movie would never get made. Especially if you get a look at those puppets because those were creepy puppets. Those puppets were the stuff of nightmares. I don't understand why any brand would think that having these horrifying-looking puppets selling their stuff would be good for business. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they don't explain why her grandfather taught her to make these creepy puppets. But they don't really do anything with it. So except for the fact that she has scary puppet dreams, 
that lead her to the non-existent treasure. There is no resolution in this movie where she's like, you know what? I got a new idea and I'm going to create a puppet shop of horrors that exists in Maine. And that's going to be my happy ending in this movie. Like there's not a real ending to this movie. They just stop. <laughs> this is going to sound like, you know, where it's like, oh, airline food is so bad and it's in such small portions. But it is actually true that if this movie had about 10 more minutes worth of wrapping up of the storylines, it would have been less bad, I think. Less bad is the right way to say because there would they would have resolved at least one of the let's call them plot yeah. threads. <laughs> they really they really dropped the ball on all of it. I on think. all of them, all but, of them. So I want to I want to go back a bit to the puppets because this is the one thing that I had a little rant about last Good. night when Good. I was watching this. Good. So my flatmate here in London is a filmmaker and specifically does stop motion animation. So I know how the puppeting works to an extent. And this film gets literally every aspect of it wrong. (laughs) And that to me is fascinating. Like she has this one job on one ad, which is going to be what, like two minutes, stretching it and advertisement is not two minutes, but let's say it's like two minutes. And she's saying that, this job was going to pay her bills for like all year that she would have been set for money. And that was her one job that she has, but that's not how freelance works. And that's not how budgets work for puppeteering films. And the reason I say all of this is because they had to hire a puppeteer for the film who would have noticed this is all wrong. (laughs) Like everything you're saying about my profession is completely wrong in this film. And they clearly just did not take any of that on board so while all of that main stuff is also just kind of there for show to say like look it's main this was also there for show to be like look she does something creative and it's not what the town expected so that's that's her whole personality and it's just goes nowhere and it's just wrong there's like no redeeming factor to this no. film i think it's unclear also if the audience is supposed to think that this puppet job that she's got that we see in the beginning of the movie, if she's good at it or not. I saw the puppets and was like, wow, that looks horrifying. And then of course the director is like, yes, we're not doing this. You're fired. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to think, well, ha ha, of course she's fired. That's terrible. Or, oh no, that's a shame. Look at those great puppets. And she's worked so hard. Yeah, because they poke a lot of fun at her profession throughout the film like the people in town are pretty sincere they're like oh that was really cool what you did and she's like yeah all of that useless stuff with puppets and she degrades it herself so it's very unclear what we're supposed to feel about this they never Um, resolve her career so no they don't the movie ends with her realizing that she likes her male friend she decides that she has loved all along it's unclear if she's going to stay in Maine with him. And of course, yeah. his family owns a Christmas tree farm. That is, I know they don't explicitly address that this is a cliche for a Christmas movie, Yeah, which I think is unfair because if you're going to have that much of a cliche, you need to acknowledge it, right? Yes. And you can still do it well. There are movies that are self-aware and they're like, wink, wink. Yes, I I run a Christmas tree farm. Like maybe they love Christmas and people laugh with them about this or something, but he doesn't. So it's unclear 
if she's going to stay in Maine with him, because now she having worked to make some money on his Christmas tree lot, she is now in the tree business. Or if she's instead going to go back to making horrifying puppets and trying to do something with them. It's just unclear. All they do is they make out in his car and then they go and have a snowball fight with her third wheel paintball range owning best friend. We're not sure because the the movie makes the sort of obligatory heartland cracks about you went to New York City full of cynical business types and fancy pretentious art folk. And it's not clear, like, did she lose if we're listing the cliches that they gestured at, but they didn't address? Is this a movie about a good hearted all American country gal who goes to the big city and forgets where she comes from and then moves back home and discovers her roots? Or is she learning that in fact, money doesn't matter and she should pursue love. That's like, that's vaguely there, but they don't actually solve the fact that she's still broke and she still is going to owe a whole bunch of rent on her New York apartment that we don't see. And she's still unemployed. What else are we leaving out? I know there's a bunch of other loose ends that don't get tied up. Well, her... Yeah, I mean, her, her parents, parents never show there. up. Yeah. We don't, maybe her parents just don't like her and they purposely left. Um, okay, so that's fair because I think she sucks. <laughs> like, like, her character is terrible. She's miserable the entire time. And like, yeah, down in New York, just got fired. She says her her rent's gone up and she couldn't afford New York anymore. So she had to come home and she has to work at the Christmas tree farm that this guy just made it very sweet where he offered to pay for her car because he had it towed when it broke down in front of his place. He offered to pay for that. And she said, like, I'm too successful for you to pay for that or something like that. And he was like, you know, if you need work, you can come work for us it was it was very gentle and sweet Mm -hmm. and she was like why would I work at a Christmas tree farm and then like comes crawling to him and asking after she can't get a job anywhere else and he still takes her in for it and he is way too forgiving in this film way too forgiving is this the love interest or the love interest dad who owns the Christmas tree farm and lot Mm, both of them but the love interest yeah the dad is weird because he is sort of there and then he goes away and it's not clear what his deal is. They could have just had it so that maybe if the love interest who in the movie, his name is Andy, if his parents had died and he's now dealing with what is he going to do with the Christmas tree lot or something, we could have written a better version of this movie in five minutes. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just not together. Like there, there are so many plots and also no plot. I do wonder if they just had a hard cap on this movie needs to be 90 minutes and it cannot go any longer. So we Mm -hmm. just need to stop it because (laughs) I was genuinely, you know, I I tried to be invested in everything else. We were due for some amount of explanation of how things end with Christmas tree farm family. Is she going to have an epiphany about her career? Or maybe not an epiphany, but a decision or something. Or why did I have to put up with all those terrifying puppets throughout this movie anyway? Um, There should be some payoff for the puppets to justify the nightmares. And there weren't. There were no payoffs at all. And that annoys me. The fact that I put more thought into watching this movie than they put into making it 
that offends me. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with all of that. The puppets are the worst. It's a hard competitive list, but the puppets are the worst thing about this film, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Um, there is one perfect piece of dialogue, though, that I really loved from this film. Sloan says, I'm having an existential crisis. And her gun-obsessed paintball friend says, ooh, that's a nice little luxury. Always good to have me time. And <laughs> that's just a great line that... Yeah. That was the only redeeming thing about this film, I think, for me. Fair. <laughs> I like the scene where the paintball-obsessed friend is trying to run over Sloan with a car. Yeah. Um, that was good. That was a good bit uh, to try and give her a near-death experience. He shoots her in, like, she's trying to trigger a near-death experience, and she just straight up shoots her after trying to mug her, and Andy doesn't know what's going on. So he genuinely thinks that she got shot and goes through all of those emotions. And then she's like, it's just pain. And that's never really resolved. He's like, you're crazy if you think that money is as important as dying, is worth dying for. And then she shows up at the drive-in and she's like, can I talk to you? And he's like, sure, I guess. And like never acknowledges again that he thought he witnessed her die. Yeah, that's a good point. Way too forgiving. He's clearly just willing to put up with a lot of abuse from her. Um, throughout this film. Yeah, he is. He really is. It's unfortunate. Yeah, like, it feels like two different movies were happening where one was like this murder mystery, not murder, this mystery, (laughs) Mm -hmm. mystery about lobster farmers and wars and turf wars and everything. Mm -hmm. Like, that looked like it was going in one direction and then they just abandoned it. And the grandmother was part of that movie but she wasn't part of the, the love story movie. You know, it would be a great twist that I would have loved is if we found out maybe like as a post-credit scene that her paintball obsessed friend had actually dug up the money years ago and used it mm. to buy her paintball range and is just being like a chummy friend and just wants to chase her friend around with the car. And this was all a lark for her and the money's already been taken. That would be interesting. And I probably would have liked the film a lot more if there were a post-credit scene that undermined the whole film. Yes. But there's another point in this about why Sloan sucks is that her friend doesn't own the paintball place. She just works there. And Sloan says, like, imagine what you can do with this money. Oh, you yeah. could you could actually do something with your life, own the paintball field. And her friend's like, I don't want to own it. And she's like, you work at a paintball range you can do better in life and she's like but I'm doing what I want to do and that's a salient point where Mm -hmm. she's living a life she genuinely wants and she's happy and she's enjoying herself and Sloan is just like I need money to be a millionaire which how is there a million dollars in that very small bag but whatever so and a million dollars in lobster turf wars I don't understand but she wants to like start her own puppet studio and animation whatever And her friend is just very hurt in that scene. And you can see it on her face and like in her expression, she's just, I love what I do. Why are you being so shitty about it? And then it's just not really addressed at all. They all just forgive her yeah, because she's Sloan, but she's awful. And she also could have taken that advice to heart and be like, yes, you are happy working at a paintball range. I could be happy doing things with my creepy puppets and I don't need to make a lot of money. Like she obviously didn't go into this for the money anyway. So it's kind of hilarious that she's really offended that she's not becoming rich doing puppetry. 
it's yeah saying that there needs to be a moral but that's the thing this movie tried for so many different messages and it failed all of them it yes, failed all of them it really did and so this is what i meant about like this movie appears to be just a bundle of every single christmas film stereotype in existence but that's the thing is in the same way that if you're like well i like chocolate ice cream and I like pulled pork and I can't decide what to do. So I'm going to put them together. That's kind of what yes. happens with Holly Star. Yes. Which also the payoff for what 55 Holly Star is, which is the whole like yeah. her grandfather kept saying 55 Holly oh Star. Oh my gosh. Payoff, Spoiler alert. Not fucking worth it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. This is going to be, I'm keeping it in. This is going to get the explicit warning again. Only our second podcast ever to get an explicit warning. It is not worth it at all no it's just it's just the price of one of the types of trees yes. at the christmas tree farm which doesn't make sense that prices wouldn't have changed in the last 20 years first of all and yes. also that her <laughs> saying 55 holly star to everyone in town doesn't trigger you know the people who run this christmas tree lot being like that's funny. That's the price of our Holly Star tree that you work here. And oh, you, you know, know what? Maybe it is. Maybe that dad who owns it secretly hates her because he's <laughs> met her. So he just won't tell her. Maybe he dug up the money and that's where he bought his Christmas tree farm with. I would love for that. That's, yes. that's going to be my headcanon about this because she's terrible and she deserves that. <laughs> like, yes. I do want to say very briefly that I think they actually made a decision for this film the okay. only decision they made to have the puppets in was i think because of the tie between puppetry and christmas with like rankin bass productions oh, and can, yeah can you talk briefly about when did these kinds of stop motion and puppet themes become prominent in christmas films so the first one of note would be rudolph in 1964 from Rankin Bass Productions. They went on to make several others, which were A Year Without a Santa Claus in, I think, 74, and Jack Frost in, I think, 79. They did Frosty the Snowman, which I think was 80s. But those are like the classic stop motion Christmas things that always, they were made for television on like NBC and they're aired very frequently. So most Americans at the very least would know the Rudolph version of Rankin-Bass being the felted stop motion puppetry kind of thing. That kind of stopped being a thing in the 80s. Nobody was really making those kinds of films anymore, at least for Christmas. But it has been kind of parodied in a few Christmas things since then. Like Saturday Night Live has done a version of Rudolph. And I think Mad also did a version of it. And it's just something that's referenced in other media. Like South Park has done one too. But um, Oh, you mean the um, Team America? Yeah, Team America is like that also. They're a trope that now we poke fun at oh those kind of creepy puppets about christmas but this film isn't poking fun at it it's taking it completely seriously and you start at the very beginning already offbeat from every other christmas film like you know that this isn't it's going to talk about the tropes but in a completely wrong way so they made the decision to be in line with kind of christmas tradition in the rank and bass style and then completely destroy any positive memories of that i think yeah so before 
turning the page, maybe mercifully, on Holly Star. Are there any 21st century themes that it maybe addresses in its, in its way uh, that we should at least take note of? I had a hard time thinking of, of many, but I, I could have missed something. I think there are a couple things that we could pull out of this that wouldn't necessarily like inform very deeply, but things that you could take as vantage points to look at other sources around this film. So I would say the first would be how she does lose her job and she says rent went up and she can't afford to be in the city anymore. So you can look at the state of artists in big cities in the 21st century and kind of defunding around their communities and job prospects and all of that. With her grandmother, I think we could we could probably think about something interesting with how the elderly are treated in society. And there's a recurring kind of joke throughout the film about how her grandmother lives in a retirement community and they treat her like it's a nursing home. And she just wants her agency back and she doesn't want to tell them when she's leaving. And they throw them a party, but it's not the party they want. So she's trying to maintain a semblance of kind of control over her life. So I think that that, that could be something interesting to say about um, the state of the elderly in the kind of contemporary world. That's a good point. Thank and you. that also builds on the whole, the grandma is in her own movie. Yeah, um, the whole time. She's just there to like... <laughs> Further, further Sloan's mystery plot along when yes. she's like, what did grandpa do next? And then the grandmother fills in the gaps and has no other kind of bearing on, on the story. I didn't realize oh, yeah. until just now that, so this is a Christmas movie with a MacGuffin and that should be a selling mm-hmm. point. And it could have been, had this been a better written movie, Michael Nichols. Uh, <laughs> like the fact that you came up with a Christmas movie that has a MacGuffin could have been great wasn't it's really bad yeah it's a really bad film (laughs) oh it really really is oh man okay switching from bad things to to good things what is something that you have been working on that our audience should be aware of that you recommend for kind of public consumption would be impressions of america the podcast that i co-host with two wonderful gentlemen as, as you said earlier, Ian, we look at 20th century American culture and politics and a lot of film and media history around those, those later decades. Today, we actually just put out an episode on um, the WWE and politics around wrestling and the kind of cultural segments that, that come out of that. So I would recommend that. Yeah. And I was I was just published last week for the first time. Wonderful. So. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, where and what's um, it called? That is with Sage Publishing in the Andrew Matthews collection, I believe. So university libraries would probably have it. And it's called Jokes and Mirrors. It's a case study on how to use cartoons and comics in historical research. Hmm. And the case study is on a cartoon from the Civil War in which Jefferson Davis is depicted in a billowing dress fleeing from union officers. Ah, well, there are numerous comics like that. I've seen many of them. The Jeff and Address series of cartoons. uh, I usually run one or more of them every every May 10th on the anniversary of his capture. 
Wonderful. I think it's really important for there to be repeated mockery and negativity directed towards Confederate figures, uh, since there's still so much of our language about the American Civil War is permeated with Confederate correctness, in -hmm. which their cause and sensibilities are needlessly flattered. So anyway, jokes and mirrors. We will, of course, post that on our social media feed of things that people should check out. So awesome. And then what is something that somebody else has come out with that you would recommend to our listeners? So one one of my favorite podcasts is called Armchair Historians. Hmm. The premise of it is that the host, Annie, she has a historian or just history kind of lover on the podcast talking about what their favorite thing about history is. It's just a very heartwarming and wonderful kind of look into why people love history and why historians study it and what the value there is beyond just kind of filling the gaps in the literature. It's it's a human kind of passion project. And any and all episodes of Armchair Historians, I would recommend for your listeners. Great. We'll have links to that on the media feed as well. Vaughn, thank you so much for being the guest on our second annual Christmas special. It has been a real treat. Hopefully we will have you on again soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really fun. I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. That's our show. A very Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and generally festive and safe holiday season to you all. If you haven't yet subscribed to us on your favorite listening platform, make it your New Year's resolution. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, at Mainly History, so you get our list of books and other media discussed in the episodes, and so that you can be kept up to date on all the latest Mainly History goings on. We've got big plans for next year, starting off with a show in January about Maine's foray into Prohibition in the 1850s. If you're doing a dry January, make sure that it's not a boring January, and stay with us. That's next time on Mainly History.